Welcome to Hope for the Heart. We find ourselves today in the book of Revelation, and if you have been listening and joining us week by week, you know that we're in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, and we're looking at the seven churches of Asia Minor. This would be the second part of the uh, the book as far as we, we broke it down into three parts based on the, the vision and the command that John has gotten and received on the Isle of Patmos. Remember, he was told to write the things which you have seen, and that is particularly chapter 1. That's the vision of the Lord and, and the description of him walking in the midst of the, of the churches and his showing his authority in the churches. And then he says, uh, the things which are. And this is where we are. We're in that, the second part, the things which are, as far as this book, it's chapters 2 and 3. And that is a list of the, or a picture of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so we're on the church of Thyatira, and this is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. A rather lengthy passage, but I want to read that to you to give you a context. And so if you would like to follow along with your Bible, please do, uh, or just mark it and read it later. But the, uh, the, the, the message is today, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. The Word of, the, of God reads, beginning in verse 18, and, the angel, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like varnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, your love, faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I give her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds." I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here we are today in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and we're looking at this fourth church, the, the uh, church of Thyatira, and so we're going to pursue this in a, in a systematic approach like we have all the rest. We're going to look at uh, different aspects of the letter. We can't cover every single uh, part of it, but we will cover the, ma- the most important part of the letter uh, so that we can have an understanding of what it's saying. But we, we live in a hostile world just like this, Church of Thyatira lived in a hostile world, and just like uh, the church at Pergamum lived in a hostile world, all of the churches through history live in a hostile culture, a hostile environment. And this is true simply because of who we are in Christ as opposed to the world and 
who they are in their relation or not relation to Christ. So it, it creates a hostile environment. But these are the seven letters contained in the book of Revelation in these two chapters. And the Lord wrote these to seven actual churches in Asia Minor. And we've said before, this is uh, the uh, known as uh, Turkey today. So that would give you an idea of what this is. To each of these churches, the Lord writes a specific letter based upon his piercing eyes looking into that church and seeing the conditions and the sin and the circumstance upon which are existent in that church. Each of these letters marks out a uniqueness of that church. And there's seven, as I've said. Five out of the seven identify serious problems that the Lord addresses and serious warnings and threats that come from him. Now remember now, these are not coming from John. These are coming from the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord has commanded John to write them. And so they're going to these churches. And for certain, uh, not all these churches are alike. They are all different. They represent churches throughout all of church history from, uh, from the time of Christ all the way to today and through today even till the time of the rapture of the church. So they represent all of them. They're all different. They're all different term, forms of worship, style. They're different in doctrinal conviction and emphasis. They're different in uh, the things that the church decides to do as far as programs. But the one thing that I really think the churches ought to be united in is to, is, is to be a church of, 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 of pursuing holiness. If the church is to be anything to the world, it is to be a representative of what heaven would be doing and saying to the world. It is to be a place where Christ is honored and his word is revered and the word of God is proclaimed mightily through that. We invite lost people to join in the church to hear how it would be and how it should be to worship a true and living God. We don't bring lost people in and try to please them or appease them. We bring them in to introduce to them the Lord Jesus Christ. If the church is anything in the world, it's God's holy people. And yet we're looking at a church here that's receiving a letter from Christ himself, from the head of the church. And in this letter, it is a, uh, an, an amazing thing to have to read this letter to see what this church is actually involved in because it is a, it's very frightening to think that a church can get this far. And so we, we looked at the church of Pergamum last week, and, and then we have this text today, which is the third church at Thyatira. And we have said from the beginning that these churches are kind of in a, a descending uh, apostasy uh, of condition of sin. So you look at one, like which is Ephesus, and you go all the way to Laodicea. They're getting worse and worse and worse. And we see that so clearly. The church of Pergamon, for example, we looked at last week. It shows what, what compromise the world leads to. It leads to full-scale idolatry and immorality. So you go from Pergamos to this letter, and you see it's gotten from, from just being a compromising situation to one being uh, a very serious situation. And so the church commands, or God commands the church to be pure and holy. And I often wonder, as I read these letters, and I've gone through these letters a lot, what it would be like for us uh, in, in, in the church today, wherever you are in whatever church you're in, to receive a letter like what they received would be a very frightening thing uh, to, to receive these kinds of letters. 
And so you look at this and you think, my goodness, I can't imagine this church at Thyatira getting a letter brought from a messenger uh, directly from John the Apostle, who is saying it's directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, and then having this letter read. You see, this letter is the longest of the seven letters. It's the longest letter written to the smallest city of all seven. But it needs to be read again and again in every time period, especially today, as tolerating sin in our culture is common. You think, how can a church do this? How does a church get this far gone? Tolerating false teaching is common. It's amazing to me what I hear and what, and you know, what you hear and what you read of what comes into certain churches. False teaching is the idolatry. Sin is the immorality. And there can be many good things in a church, effective things. Many times the churches can be growing in number. But this is a statement to think about, and that is, is this church doing what it is called to do? Is it is it in the community for the reasons that it should be in the community? You see, this has been... This is a church that's growing. It's increasing in number, but it is also a church that is in trouble. Now, I want to begin like I do all of them, looking at the the, the correspondent, or I know many of the commentaries I read, they all use the word correspondent. So we look at the elements of this letter, and we get a glimpse into actually how this letter was pieced together, and it comes from uh, basically the vision that John has in chapter 1, and each of the aspects of the way he describes Christ there takes each one of these and brings them. And it says here, to the messenger of the church in Thyatira, write in, in verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And here's what he says, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished, burnished bronze, says this. So this tells us who it's from. It's from the Son of God. He has eyes like a flame of fire. And we saw that picture in chapter 1. And it is telling us, and I know there's many time, many ways we could get into all of this, which we've already covered some of it, but what this is basically telling us is this is a church that is facing judgment. That's what this is a picture is. There's a single difference between what, what John actually says in chapter 1 and the actual introduction to the church of Thyatira. And in chapter 1, he says in, in uh, the description of this, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. One, As I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, representing the humanity of Christ. And here he says he doesn't use that same identity. He uses the identity as the son of God. That's what he says in verse 18. The son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. So here we see this, the Son of Man spoke to his humanness, and it speaks, therefore, of his compassion and his care, his intercession, and his interest to us that uh, he's understanding our weaknesses and failures and struggles. But now, all of a sudden, the language is the same uh, about his laser knowledge, omniscience, but here he's referring to judgment. And so he's identified as the Son of God. The emphasis is on his holiness. This emphasis transcends uh, all of this, and his emphasis, he's emphasizing his deity, and that must mean judgment. So this is not an encouraging beginning. If I were sitting in that church, I'd be thinking, oh, no. In fact, you, you, you would have to think, well, how bad this could be. 
the Savior is, is writing this letter, and he's now become the judge, and so he is writing this. And it says his eyes are like a flame of fire. We saw that in chapter 1. It means he is omniscient. His laser focus penetrates everything, consumes every opposition, sweeps down, and, and, and can see right through to this very sin. Now, his feet are like uh, fine bronze. We, we get a picture of that in chapter 19, verse 15, uh, treading under the, uh, the wrath of the treadmill, the wine press. And it's a, really a picture of devastating judgment. As in all the letters, the introduction of the author and the language borrowed from chapter 1 to introduce the author fits the very character of the letter. This is a letter no church would want us to receive. And so as we're getting into this, you would have to just feel so, I feel so bad for that church, but yet not when you to understand what they're doing. This is a judgment on a church that has literally begun to tolerate the deep things of Satan. It's a terrifying text, and God will not tolerate sin. So as we get into this and move from the church or the correspondent, we see the city. And again, the city, is a, they call it the passage city. It's a, it's a, it has no real fortifications there. It's known, or it's about 30 or 40 miles. Uh, each of these are about 30 or 40 miles from each other, these seven churches. And it provided a, uh, a way for a passage to Pergamos. This is, if, in other words, if you're going to go to Pergamos, you had to come through Thyatira. And it became a very commercially viable a city because of the dye that was developed there. In fact, if we uh, were to go to the book of Acts, we would see uh, that uh, Lydia, a seller of purple, was from the city of Thyatira. She was the first convert uh, there, and so she was dealing in precious goods. And today, if you go to that location, you'll find a small town of about 25,000 people, they say, and apparently the main uh, business there is weaving of oriental rugs so they've remained pretty close to the same after all of these years but it was a, a, a considered to be a religious city because there was worship there and i think that would be very similar in america today we think if somebody worships doesn't matter what they worship but they're considered religious and we know how ridiculous that is but there were fortune tellers shrines and all kinds of gods there uh that uh, were were uh, what people were worshiping very close to Pergamos uh, and all that was there. But the, I want to look at the church for just a minute because uh, you, you do know we don't have a whole lot of time, but I want to cover some of this. The church here, it, it started, we, we believe, probably with Paul and all of Asia uh, being uh, uh, impacted by Paul's missionary journeys. Lydia, who had come to Philippi and Macedonia on business, heard Paul and was saved. Uh, maybe she went back, and you know, there's a lot of hypotheticals there. Of perhaps she uh, uh, led others, and that's how the church began. But all churches throughout all the time have a mixture of believers and unbelievers. I know that's shocking. I know that uh, we, we tend to think that everybody in, our, in the church is saved because they, they look good, they carry a Bible, but most of the time it is not. I'll never, never forget the first time I heard John MacArthur say that in the typical churches in America today, uh, probably 70 to 80% of the church is lost. And I thought, well, golly, how in the world could that be? But you know, the more I, I see, the more I begin to understand, and I only see a, a drop in a great ocean, that there, there, that could be very true. But let's just say it's not true. 
Let's just say, well, he's way off. What about 50% of the church is, is, is unbelievers? That's way too many. And so my point is there's always going to be a mixture. In this church, there were people who were literally living the same kind of sinful life that they had before they ever came to Christ or before they ever possessed Christ. As far as we can tell in history, this church disappeared some 100 years from where we write this, where this letter is written today. So they did not do what the Lord has said. But let me look at what it what the Lord noticed and what the Lord found in this by looking at the, the commendation. Look at what it says in verse 19. I know your deeds, your love, faith, service, perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So you look at this and you say, well, uh, there is this con- commendation. It's really a good commendation. I know your deeds, your works, and this works, uh, they're works of love. Uh, you may have what Ephesus needed. Ephesus lacked their genuine love. You have it. There's no mention here, by the way, of sound doctrine, as there was in Ephesus. They had love. They had faith. And that might indicate that they had fidelity to the truth. Uh, We just certainly hope they did. There was a certain loyalty, a dependability, a certain reliability that was characterized by probably each of the service. And so there was a certain perseverance here, uh, meaning there was a steadfast endurance that springs from faith. And so these are good things. This church, basically, when he says the late are, uh, when he says at the end of this, the, the deeds of late are greater than at first. I believe he's really just saying the church was growing and their deeds were greater. There was, the, there was life there. There were good things there, uh, and so we we can see this is probably a good thing. That, in other words, they know the right things to do. But boy, this commendation, this commendation is going to be very short-lived. And he only gives it to us in one verse, verse 19, and then verse 20. Notice the first word, but. That leads me to number five, the condemnation. Condemnation. Now, this is a condemnation. But I want to read just verse 20 real quick. I have this against you. This is Christ who has something against this church. I is personal. I personally, the head of the church, have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And basically that's it. That's what he is saying there. And then we pick up other little tidbits from the, the explanation of what he's saying in the judgment that's coming. But he says, I have this against you. And we have to say that this church must be, uh, should be, is aware of the fact it is it's not being tolerant, or of uh, of the right things. It's it's tolerating the wrong things. We have to say that this church is, man, it's on a de- desperate narrow path. The church tolerated this woman. I don't know why or how in the world this church would even think of having. And I know that I could get reprimanded for this. But I think the scriptures are clear. I don't know how this church could think of having a woman preacher. You see, we're still in the first century. And it should have been of even stronger belief there. But this is evidently someone who has come on board, who has been in, into the church, and she is, the word is used there, is the preacher. Uh, they have succumbed to, to, to a false teaching there, and not only a woman preacher, but an immoral one, an idolatrous one, into the deep things of Satan. But evidently the church did accept her. It's shocking, absolutely shocking that they would tolerate this woman Jezebel. 
The danger to this church was, wasn't external like the other three churches. This church faces its greatest dangers from being internal threats. And this is not the worship of some outside God, but the tolerance of some inside false teacher who's literally bringing in ideas and teachings about gods that are not true. We don't know who she was. But her name is, the, the scripture, this is out of the words of Christ, calling her Jezebel. Is that a real name? I doubt it. Do you know anybody named Jezebel today? I, I don't think you probably do. At least I don't know anybody named Jezebel. I can't imagine naming my daughter Jezebel. But I think there's a reason why we don't know anybody named Je Jezebel, and that's because of the character she represents in the Old Testament. Uh, she, uh, she was the daughter of a pagan king, and she brought in Baal worshiping. Uh, she married Ahab, uh, you remember, and set up Baal worship in Israel that ended in disaster. The priests of Baal were uh, basically, I hate to say this, but they were sexual perverts, wicked. Jezebel brought in orgies, worshiping Baal uh, back in Second Kings. And if you want to know what that kind of woman was, all you have to do is read a, a little bit in, in, in Second Kings chapter 9, verse 33. It says, Throw her down, so they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank and said, See now, this cursed woman, bury her, for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her. They found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned uh, and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, in the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. There it is. And the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face in the field in the property of Jezreel. I can't imagine a worse ending to someone like that. Now, she ended up being eaten by the dogs. That's Jezebel, the Old Testament. That's why nobody would name their, their child Jezebel. Was this actually her name? Probably not. She was an idol worshiper. She was Jezebel-like. In character, she introduced immorality and idolatry in the church. She is symbolically called Jezebel in the way that Jerusalem would symbolically be called Sodom and Egypt in its time of iniquity. And so, it says here she calls herself a prophetess. That word is literally meaning a preacher. She is a preacher. I just reminded you of the. Uh, I just just to remind you again that uh, most cults originate from very prominent roles of women. She calls herself a prophetess, which means she speaks for God. She teaches and she leads, it says, my bondservants, or translated, my slaves astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. How could a church succumb to that? How could a church actually get involved in that? Well, they didn't deal with it. They didn't deal with it. They began to push it off it. There's got to be more there than that. The Lord says, I gave her time to repent. That's, that's a gracious mercy of God. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent. How is it possible that someone could come into the church in the first century and convince people that you can live an immoral life and carry on the worshiping of idols? How is that possible? Well, they already had a tolerance for other sin. They have become... Uh, uh, just, I guess, uh, uh, passive in, in dealing with the problems with the church. And this has always been a problem with, with churches uh, today, uh, all through time. They, they just began to 
to be unrealistic in how they approach people. They're scared of people. They're scared to deal with problems because we, we and I know as being a pastor, you, you tend to think about what is, what's the community going to think? What's our church? What if I do this? Uh, I've heard pastors say they can't do church discipline because they're afraid that we'll lose half the congregation. And so they begin to tolerate things. The next statement I think is pretty shocking here uh, when it says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she does not repent. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, this is not the tribulation period, which some people say. This is a great burden, a great problem he's going to cast them into. I will kill her children with pestilence. What a, what a, what a statement. Man, this is all indicative of, a, of a, a holy, righteous God reacting to this, this uh, indignation that's going on in the very church of God. What do you mean by it? It says her children, all who follow her pattern, all who follow her example in every age, that follow, uh, her, in other words, her offspring. Uh, I will kill them. Boy, that is, you talk about strong language. I will kill them with pestilence. The word pestilence is death. Literally compound statement. I will kill her children with death. Christ wants his church pure, and he may kill people to bring it about. Boy, you talk about a strong statement and a warning to churches today. Our churches today across this land are many are following the path of more and more what they call praise, worship and praise. I just think they better be careful of what they're actually worshiping and praising. I think they ought to be careful of what the worship and praise service is. Uh, I'm not going to say too much about that uh, at this particular time, but I just think churches ought to be very discerning because 1 Corinthians 11 says to the Corinthian church that some of them were desecrating the Lord's table, and it says the Lord killed them. So, you know, that's... That's, a, that's a, just an amazing thing. And then 1 John five sixteen says there is a sin unto death. The Lord may decide that he's going to take the life of people in the church, professed, that's it, professed believers, and maybe even real believers because of their sin. After all, there is the story of Ananias and Sapphira were killed on the spot in the acts of their sin. God cannot tolerate sin. And so we find this here. Uh, that is a, a very much a warning. I gave her time. She did not respond. And this is what I am going to do. And of course, we've already said that she did not repent. And this church is no longer here a few years later. But look at verse 23. After I says, I'll kill their children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind uh, and hearts. And I will give to each one of you, uh, each one of you according to your deeds. You know, this congregation is hearing this kind of a letter read to them. Now, what they're thinking and how they're responding is just a fascinating statement to me that all the churches know, that they will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts. In other words, He is reading their hearts and minds even as they're listening. And you know, I think sometimes we just we forget that. We forget that God is omniscient, that he's all-knowing and can read our hearts and minds. He I know your reaction. I know your sin. And this is what he's basically saying. Uh, listen to Jeremiah 17.10. He says, I have intimate knowledge, perfect knowledge. This is God talking. I know the depths of sin, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. 
That, of course, encompasses future judgment, but more than that, it's about right now. Your faith, true faith, is expressed in righteous deeds. In other words, because you are who you are, there are certain things that are called deeds that your spirit will do. We talk about the need for revival. Well, we, this is a church that needs revival, but we need revival today in our own country. We need today in our own church. But let me ask you something. I think this is the kind of questions we ought to be asking. If revival were to come to the very church you're in, what would it look like? What would change in that church if true reformation came today? What would be the difference? What would change? I'm talking about churches all across the country. Would it change some of the church's style of worship or tone of worship or volume of worship or the way they handle or mishandle the Word of God if true reformation were to come? I think that's probably up to the church to answer that. But I want to look at the, uh, number six, the command. It's found in verse 24. But I say this to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. Now, I want you to notice, this is not God calling them the deep things of Satan. This is what the people call them. So they are, almost, it's almost like a, a braggadocious way they're saying, man, we're studying, we're into the very deep things of Satan. I've heard people say that about the, the, the scriptures. They get into this new teaching and they say, man, we're, we're into the very deep things of God. But this is the deep things of Satan. And I know the rest of you, uh, I know who you are, and this is the church hearing this. You have no other church to go to. There's only one in Thyatira. I know you don't hold to these teachings, and the teachings is some kind of a, of a, a mixing of a law and grace, some kind of a mixing. See, we're not really told what it actually is here. And so we can only imagine based on other documents and things we have learning about other churches. Well, what was the teaching? Well, I think it was very close to uh, the permission for people to sin because sin is of the body and you can't do anything about that. It's the spirit God's interested in. And what a tremendously false information they're giving to people. You see, the reality is, which is what they would say, you're free to sin because you can't do anything about it. That's what is, is being... Uh, permeated through these teachings. But there are those who hold these teachings. And they're called the deep things of Satan. If you teach that God is indifferent to your sin, if you teach that God is indifferent to your disobedience, if you teach that God uh, tolerates your, uh, your paganism, tolerates your immorality, you literally are in the deep things of Satan. And we could go on. You could write a whole book on the deep things of Satan. You're teaching something that is satanic, and it is to be... Abandon. You are to repent of that. But then there is a promise in number seven. And that promise comes in, in uh, when you look at, uh, let's see, what verse is it? Verse 25. Nevertheless, when you have hold fast until I come, and he who overcomes, he will keep my deeds until the end. This is talking about the end of uh, the tribulation period, the, that period of the end. When he comes, he will overcome and keep my deeds till the end. In other words, uh, those who demonstrate true saving faith, that's the ones we're looking at here. These are the ones that because they are in true uh, uh, saving faith, they are called overcomers according to 1 John 5, 5. The one who overcomes is the one who has faith in Christ. And the evidence of true faith is in Christ is endurance, obedience, 
God, uh, good works to the very end. So if you demonstrate the genuineness of your salvation, the reality of your salvation, then you're not just professing salvation. You are living it, and you will overcome. And then in verse 26, I will give authority over the nations. I will give authority over these. And the, that's an amazing statement. What does it mean, authority over the nations? Well, when we reign with Christ during the millennial reign, and we're gonna, we'll spend a little bit of time on the millennium when we actually get there. But that's what that means. Verse 27. Uh, here, look, look at what verse 27. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as, as the vessels of potter are broken into pieces, and I will... And also, as I have received authority from my Father. This is taken from Psalm 2, the great passage. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken, and I have received authority from my Father. Now, it's an amazing thing to think about the future, but that's what this is talking about. This is talking about the kingdom rule. This is talking about what's going to happen in the in the millennial kingdom. It's interesting enough that uh, this, this kind of language is used here, but the rod of iron is is to beat off the attackers to protect the, the, the sheep. The shepherd is to do that. So if you're faithful, he says, I will share my authority with you. Those of us who are glorified believers will be in the kingdom reigning with Christ. But there's more. Look at, look at what verse 28 says. I will give him the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, the morning star, according to Revelation 22, 16, says this. I, Jesus, have set my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, I am the bright and morning star. What is that? It is Jesus Christ. That is what is the promise here. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, are you listening? Are you listening to the, to the wisdom of the letter, to the warning of the letter? This is a warning that God takes sin serious. I think sometimes, I've been in churches, many churches, and sometimes it's almost like they're taking this as, as a game. Church is not a game. Uh, that is a very serious thing. Uh, how would your church respond to a letter like this is the real question here. The message here to this church is a warning. It's a warning for us today. The churches across this world need to take a look at themselves. Our churches, we need to ask, are we tolerating sin? Are we tolerating a a weakness or a downgrading or a, uh, of God's Word? Are we really promoting the Word of God? Are we doing that? It is a tremendous question to ask. And so I, I thank you today for joining with me. And again, I want to encourage you to, to keep reading the Scriptures. Stay with them. And we're going to be uh, looking at next week the message to Sardis. Uh, uh, there again, we're, we're looking at some powerful messages to churches which are actually warnings to us. Thank you again for joining, and I'll see you next time.